For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Governor-elect Kevin Stitt, who won the election, touting himself as an outsider, has tapped several political insiders to help with his transition team. Some of the members include former state Senator Mike Mazie, former Republican Party chair, and now Lieutenant Governor-elect Matt Pinnell, as well as outgoing Labor Commissioner Melissa Houston, who served as Chief of Staff and Policy Advisor for then-Attorney General Scott Pruitt. Neva, what do you think of this team Stitt has assembled? Well, I think it's a strong team, and let's look at let's look at this. It's a transition team, so mm-hmm. you put people in place that you trust, that you have some relationship with. Many of these folks were involved in the campaign uh, at in in various levels, and so it, you hit the ground running. I mean, it's a you, you don't uh, you don't uh, put people in that don't really know the process and don't know the players, and and when you look at it, I mean, we're only eight weeks from the inaugural uh, ceremony and 11 weeks from the state of the state. I mean, they have a yeoman's task ahead of them just to not only begin to put the key players in place that have to be selected and the chief of staff and and uh, and the other key folks that are going to help not only with the transition, but the beginnings of uh, the first days in office. So I think when you look at Mark Nuttall chairing that committee, someone who knows the ins and outs of politics, both uh, in Oklahoma, certainly has been uh, a national player for decades. He's someone who brings a lot of strength and I think uh, a calm demeanor who knows uh, who knows and understands what the task is and made it very clear that he understood what Kevin stood as the governor-elect wants to see happen, not only in the transition, but in the early stages of this policy formation, which is another part of the transition team. Right. So much for draining the swamp. <laughs> you know, the uh, I think that there's there's always, or at least hopefully at the end of an election, there's this sense that there's a difference between campaigning, go- campaigning and governing. And at the point that you come into government, you have to begin to govern and you have to bring people in that understand how the government works. The government is one of the most, com- the state government is one of the most complex entities on the face of this earth. And Every uh, state uh, government that a governor has inherited in the state of Oklahoma has been more difficult and more complex than the one before it. It's, uh, and, and so I, I do, I applaud the idea of bringing in seasoned veterans that understand how government works because you have to have that continuity. You have a very short window of time, like Neva said, to get up to speed, get ready for this legislative session, and just to begin to run. I mean, the administrative agencies that report to the executive branch, they need to have a steady hand there so that there can be some continuity in the delivery of services to the people of Oklahoma. Now, all that said, it's it's funny that Kevin Stitt ran an entire campaign against Drew Edmondson, that Edmondson had been in government for far too long, that the last thing we needed to do was put somebody in power that had already been there and had already had a chance. And now with this transition team, we see the exact opposite. He's bringing these folks in. And so to me, it's, I'm glad that he recognizes that, but it's hypocritical of him to have run that campaign and said, I'm an outsider. We need people that are from outside government to run government. And now there's this recognition, oh man, we've got to have somebody that knows how to drive a car. But but really, I mean, when you look at that group, half of that group plus, more than half, uh, are folks that have not been elected to anything, that were involved uh, with uh, Kevin Stitt either in his campaign. Uh, They're not not inside players, I mean, in terms of uh, knowing, uh, having been elected to something or even been appointed to something. You have some civic leaders, community leaders, I mean, people that have backgrounds, yes, that 
that bring some expertise, but the bottom line is what they do is begin to uh, ferret through a process that allows the, the, that allows Kevin Stitt and his team to be able to systematically move forward. And I think it, we would have seen the same thing with Drew Edmondson. I mean, he would have brought in his team of trusted confidants, advisors, and 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 a little wider sphere of folks that uh, that brought something to the table that they felt like they needed during the transition phase. And I think I think that's customary. I don't think it's anything out of the norm. I don't think, in fact, we would be, I think, having the conversation, the debate would be, why would someone that was uh, uh, coming in as the next governor bring a bunch of amateurs or people that know nothing about anything and make them uh, head of the transition team? That would make no sense either. And this is a transition team, not the not the sure. That's right. That's right. Sure. That's right. And, but I, I do think that the difference between Edmondson bringing in seasoned veterans and uh, Stitt doing it at this point is that Edmondson would have been honest about that. You know, Stitt ran this outsider campaign, and he said that he wanted to be like President Trump. And to that extent, he has succeeded thus far. And that President Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp. He wanted to get rid of all of the establishment in Washington. And whenever he got elected, who did he surround himself yeah. with? But the a very, bunch of he surrounded himself with the very officials. people that he had been surrounded with during the course of his campaign. So th- that's the distinction. I mean, these are folks that had been with him, many of them from day one in this campaign. So it's hard to make that. I think it's hard to make that argument. House Democrats are choosing their new leader after the current minority leader, Steve Copeland, failed in his reelection bid earlier this month. Now, we're taping this on Thursday, so the vote will actually be later today. But the two main contenders are Representative Representatives Early Emily. Representatives Emily Virgin of Norman or Jason Dunnington of Oklahoma City. Ryan, these are two progressive young people in the Democratic Party. Well, and I'm getting early word that Emily Virgin is going to come out ahead in this. I mean, oh, so see, there's uh, exclusive right here, right exclusive here. right here uh, that, that we're hearing that Emily Virgin is going to be the next Democratic leader. And I think that that reflects the changing tone within the Democratic Party uh, statewide. And, you know, what we've saw, what we've seen in this last election is the realignment between urban and rural areas that has happened almost everywhere else in the nation ahead of Oklahoma is almost complete here uh, with the 5th District win for Kendra Horn, with the solidification of urban seats by Democrats, uh, and with the loss of a handful of rural seats by Democrats that, frankly, in, in other states would have been uh, won by Republicans a long time ago, including Steve Copeland, the former Democratic leader. I think that there was, even, even though Steve Copeland was a, a very capable legislator, uh, I think that there was some question as to why he was the individual that replaced Scott Inman when Scott Inman stepped down as the Democratic leader last year, because Scott had seemed to move the, uh, the party in that House Democratic caucus into a more progressive, more urban uh, caucus that really is the future for Democratic uh, majorities if they're ever going to have one in the House again. And, you know, Copeland was almost seen as a step back to the rural area, the rural era of the Democratic Party, which is really long gone at this point. And so Emily, being a woman, being from an urban center in Norman, uh, I think that she is the face and the future of the Democratic Party, and congratulations to her for winning that seat as the new leader of the Democratic Caucus. And even, <laughs> even before the vote's taken. That's right. <laughs> even before the, even before, well, it may have already been taken, so we'll, well sure. yeah. You know, and it's interesting, Emily at 32 is the senior, is the senior yes. member of the Democratic Caucus, and, and she's going to lead a, a uh, 
25 House Democrats, uh, nine of whom are, will be uh, in their first term. I mean, so so you've got you've got a lot of uh, you've got a lot of folks in there that are uh, across the board, Republicans and Democrats, that uh, are just now going to kind of hit the hit the ground running in their first term. It will be an opportunity, and I think it will be interesting to see uh, if if it if it proves to be true. And I think it is likely that Emily will be the uh, uh, the the new de- uh, Democrat leader. That you'll have uh, females in in the House and the Senate uh, in mm-hmm. in leading the, the their Democratic caucuses, and I think the other thing is with the numbers, the sheer numbers that we see now in the legislature, it will be an interesting time to see how Democrats can navigate and decide what issues they choose to to really work on and try to work to get some bipartisan buy-in so that they can see some uh, so they can see some uh, efforts be successful on their part because it'll be tough. Sledding. I mean, no question. When you look at uh, when you look at the political landscape in the Capitol this year, so I'm hearing the vote has happened, okay. uh, and and it's official. How cool is this? Right now, in this moment in 2018, the three most powerful Democratic politicians in Oklahoma are women: Kendra Horn, who's a Congresswoman-elect out of the fifth district; Emily Virgin, the Democratic Minority Leader; and Senator Kay Floyd, the Democratic Minority Leader over in the Senate. And the Democratic Chair. And the Democratic Chair, absolutely. Yeah, right. yeah. We we're seeing this is the future of the Democratic Party. Meanwhile, the Republicans. I didn't. We weren't going to talk about this, but the Republicans have kept, picked uh, Charles McCall to stay as House Speaker and and uh, Harold Wright to stay as Pro Tem. So not much it's leadership change in the Republicans for the House. Uh, those two positions not change, but uh, you have people like Tammy West uh, coming in as the caucus chair, uh, someone who uh, is uh, one of the the bright rising stars, I think, in in the uh, uh, among House House Republicans now in her second term, just having been reelected. So uh, we'll we'll see as we see the um, speaker uh, roll out the new chairmanships and kind of see what happens. I, th- I think we will see more, uh, you know, some new names and some new faces in the, some of those key positions. And uh, uh, that's one of the things that is always exciting as we see these uh, transitions take place is who emerges as kind of the next uh, wave of folks that are going to be at the forefront. And Ryan, what do you think about the new, the, the same leadership basically as, as we've had before? Well, you know, I think that uh, Speaker McCall, I, I felt that there were many instances last during that last legislative session where the House in particular, the legislature, but the House in particular desperately needed leadership. And he, he just fell short on many occasions. I think that some of that can be you know, chalked up to expediency, political expediency. I think a lot of it can be just chalked up to inexperience and, and not being there. And when we talk about, when we're looking at experience, I mean, I think 77 of the members of the Oklahoma House are going to have two years or less under their belt uh, going into this next legislative session. So, I mean, you're going to have leaders that have very uh, little experience relative to leaders in the past. Mm-hmm. And you know, we can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I think you know, going into a new term as speaker, hopefully he will have learned some lessons over some several very contentious sessions and special sessions right. as Speaker of the House. Oklahoma's newest congressman, Kevin Hearn, takes his oath of office to finish the term of Jim Bridenstine, who is now leading NASA. Normally, a newly elected U.S. representative would have to wait until January. But since it was an open seat, he will actually be around for the final weeks of the outgoing Congress. Neva, this is a bit like being thrown in the deep end. <laughs> but but that happens. I mean, even uh, even Congressman Frank Lucas, Frank Lucas same thing. Uh, who, who, who called himself the special election baby. I mean, even he uh, uh, kind of reflected back on this. I, I 
think the bigger the bigger point is that after a year of no representation in Congress, now the first district does have uh, someone in there representing them and and being their being their voice for that district. So uh, I think he was uh, uh, one of uh, a half a dozen folks that kind of fit the criteria of being uh, being able to come in at this point and in the closing days of uh, of uh, of uh, December here uh, make some fairly significant votes on some issues that uh, have to be addressed, including uh, the potential uh, uh, shutdown of government, right. uh, which uh, looms, uh, you know, looms larger than any of the other questions, I think, at hand. Right. And, and there's already been leadership votes in the House that uh, Congressman Hearn has weighed in on. He, I think he was an early supporter of Jim Jordan, who was kind of the, the outsider candidate uh, to be the Republican minority leader. And of course, he didn't win. Uh, Kevin McCarthy out of California picked up that leadership spot. Now, Congressman Hearn has said that one of the reasons that he was going to vote for Congressman Jordan was that he was planning to follow in the the steps of Bridenstine. Congressman Bridenstine mm-hmm. of, of being somebody that was going to be an outsider, uh, was going to you know be somewhat contentious within his own caucus and try to uh, you know create some create some opportunity for movement within that caucus. So that's that's interesting. Your one of your first votes for leadership as a member of of that caucus doesn't turn out the way you want. So, I but mean, I think it was a foregone conclusion. It, was for- it wasn't going to turn yeah. out that way. I mean, I don't I don't Kevin, Kevin McCarthy way. was yeah. the overwhelming. I don't uh, think favor- there's any consequences for that. In, so but that's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Conservative Freedom Caucus, uh, uh, it, it, it more was a statement, and I think, as you say, kind of a continuation of kind of the uh, the Bridenstine uh, mindset of how to how to approach the leadership question. Whether he does that long term, I think that's a I think that's still open to debate. And then it's going to be awkward, though. I mean, for him to he's going to be in the majority for two months yeah. <laughs> and then goes in the minority. Is that an awkward just way to, 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 to be done doing this? Hey, you know, two months in the majority is better than no months in the majority. Right? <laughs> as, as somebody who came into the Oklahoma House. Now that's a memorable line. The, the year that the House, the Democrats lost the, the majority in the House uh, in, in the Oklahoma legislature, I would have taken two months in the majority. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. A report in the Tulsa world shows 40% of Oklahoma voters chose to mark straight party rather than individual candidates. More than 64% marked Republicans with 34% of the Democrats. Oklahoma is currently one of only eight states with straight party voting, which will change in 2020 when Texas eliminates its straight party voting on ballots. Ryan, is it time for lawmakers to reconsider the section on ballots? You know, when I was, when I was in the legislature, I actually introduced legislation to get ready straight party voting in Oklahoma. Uh, and ironically, the the biggest adversary to that, and I think you know, ultimately helped play into uh, the defeat of that legislation, were Democratic leaders, especially at the county level. Yeah, at that time, I think it was probably 2006 or so. Uh, folks saw the straight party Democratic officials saw straight party voting as an advantage, in particular to county races like sheriff and county commissioner, and they were afraid if they got rid of that that they would lose some ground. And I think that ultimately the bill died because of Democrats. Uh, you know, now I think it would probably die because of Republicans. Now, even, you know, so, but, you know still get rid of it. I think though, uh, even being a champion for it once before, now I'm, I'm much more tepid about it. I think that if, it, if you get rid of it, it would only have a marginal difference, if any difference at all in the polls. I mean, voters are still gonna be able to see that party ID next to a candidate's name. And I really think that we're at this point where Partisan tribalism plays a lot more uh, a role in how people vote than just like seeing that straight party vote. It's not they're not voting Republican because it's convenient. They're voting Republican because they want to. People aren't voting Democrat because it's convenient. They're voting Democrat because they want to. 
I see, you know, Corey Williams attributed some of his loss in that DA race uh, up in Stillwater, uh, Payne and Logan counties to straight party ballots that were cast. I think it had a lot less to do with straight party ballots than it did that he was a Democrat and his opponent was a Republican and Republicans won those two counties. Neva. I would agree wholeheartedly. And I think that is true. I think I think when you look at it, whether there's straight party voting as an option or not, you are still going to see, even in the instance of this past election where you had 300 plus thousand Republicans and 160,000 plus Democrats voting straight party, had they not had that option uh, at the top, they still largely would have voted that very same pattern of and down the up and down the ticket and so I think it's it's less it's less about the straight party and more as you say about the identification and not so much the tribalism mentality as it is the philosophical mentality of where they see party you know the parties philosophically aligned and where that matches their views and values and so I think at this point uh, in Oklahoma we're going to continue to see uh, we're going to continue to see Republicans run very strong uh, even going into the the next uh, uh, presidential uh, season two years from now. And so I think that this is kind of much to do about nothing. I think we'll hear a lot about yeah. it because it sounds good. It's got a little sensationalism to it. Uh, people seem to want to kind of make more of it than there is. But I think I think your points are very well taken, Ryan, in terms of uh, really what the reality of all of this is. And some interesting results out of uh, some uh, political psychology uh, studies that have come out. And, and when we talk about partisan tribalism, this you're probably going to hear me talking more and more about this on the show. But uh, even when, you know, uh, Neva says that it's about philosophy, what we've seen is that partisan identification will trans, you know, this is maybe the first time in American politics what, what these scientists have seen is that partisan identification will transcend even policy changes so that a party or uh, a party can change a policy 180 degrees, but people will stick with that party. And that's, that's different than things maybe were even two, four years ago. And I would say that the other thing is that if folks want to focus on electoral reform, uh, ranked choice voting, proportional vote, proportional representation, those are things that I think that would actually increase the number of voices that are heard in our democratic process. If you haven't listened to it, just a, a quick pitch for the Radio Lab episode. Go on podcast. Listen to the most recent Radio Lab episode about ranked choice voting and get a sense of what that might look like because it's had some success, not just internationally, but in states in the United States and municipalities in the United States where it's made for more civil uh, and more engaged electorates. That's harder to put on a bumper sticker. <laughs> well, that's one of the things that they talked about in this Radio Lab episode of, of how we begin to explain these things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The I love the story. The Ada district attorney wins election after his challenger received the endorsement of a best-selling author, John Grisham. Republican D.A. Paul Smith received nearly 59 percent of the vote, even though Grisham decided to endorse, give twenty seven hundred dollars and even provide robocalls for his opponent, Joshua Edwards. Neva, does this just once again show how little endorsements really matter in a political well, race? Well, I, I think in this instance, it showed that the outsider trying to make his case uh, in this particular D.A.'s race went nowhere. I mean, here's someone who was running for his first time uh, on the ballot as D.A. He'd been appointed by uh, Governor Fallon to uh, uh, to fill out a seat. He'd been the first assistant there, been in that office for, I think, a, a more than a decade. So well-known in those three counties uh, in that in that D.A. district. And I think it's uh, this is really a case of uh, the all-politics all 
is local uh, mindset of the folks knew, you know, they they kind of knew who they who the two candidates were and clearly made a, a very uh, a very clear distinction on who they wanted to be their DA. Ryan, regardless, we are still a southern state and we hate our carpet carpetbaggers coming in and telling us how to vote. So I, even even if it wasn't a carpetbagger, I mean, he was the, from the, Missouri. The, yes, the, the ghost of Bob Macy could have come back and endorsed uh, Paul Smith's <laughs> opponent, and I don't think it would have made a difference. I mean, it, it's I. You know, I, I do think that the points that John Grisham raised about Paul Smith uh, are incredibly valid. Paul Smith, number three overall, or number three in per capita admissions to the state's prison system, number six overall in the state. Uh, when you look at drug offenses out of his district, you know, he's in the top five, if not the top three overall. Uh, we, we look at a man who, you know, even though he's saying these are decisions that were all, that were mostly made by my predecessors, decisions that he's made recently uh, about folks that have, through working with the Innocence Project, with DNA evidence, have been all but exonerated. Uh, instead of just saying, okay, well, we're going to admit our mistake, you know, he's acted like the prototypical district attorney, and he said, well, we're going to just we're going to keep this felony record on your on your uh, on your life, uh, even though we're going to let you out. You've been in since and 1988. That's on both sides of the, uh, the aisle, both sides yeah. of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans and DAs. I think that you know this. What John Grisham's letter, I think, it was probably going to have very little impact on how that race was ultimately decided. Uh, but it is part of a larger conversation about the overwhelming power of prosecutors to not only have influence, influences in how they exercise their discretion in their local districts, but the political power that they wield at the state capitol. So Paul Smith has said, you know, these were my predecessors. Um, and if he really wants to make good on that, I expect to see him at the state capitol this year championing criminal justice reforms well, alongside and, and, the unlikely yeah, allies like right. ACLU and Chris well, Steele. And, one and of these groups. things like, uh, I mean, he was the co-founder of one of the state's first rural drug courts. I mean, he does have a record uh, as a prosecutor of somebody that's been a strong advocate for children and for the elderly, has uh, been, you know, recognized, uh, you know, numerous times and with the uh, through various groups. So I think I think he has a he has a track record. He certainly uh, uh, is someone who I think as he goes forward now uh, in his uh, first elected uh, time as the district attorney, I mean, we'll see with a lot of these issues that clearly are going to be at the forefront at the legislature. I mean, criminal justice reform is an, is a significant movement that is going to continue to be championed by a, a, a wide host of folks across the state of Oklahoma. And I think something that legislators are going to really delve into very early in this session and continue to uh, decide what direction we're going to go in and, that regard. And DAs like Paul Smith have been some of the biggest obstacles mm -hmm. to real criminal justice reform in the state of Oklahoma. That doesn't have to be that way. And so I, you know, I welcome, if, if Paul Smith wants to be a criminal justice reformer, if he wants to come to the Capitol and say, hey, listen, my, my office in the past has sent way too many people into Oklahoma's prisons that ought not be there, that we've used drug court in punitive ways rather than rehabilitative ways, and we want to change that. Let's go up there, and I want to sit next to him and have that conversation and be advocates together. Well, and I think, and I think it is a time when there is going to have to be a reset across the board. I mean, this combative, confrontational atmosphere that we've seen for too long in the, inside the the halls of the House and the Senate, uh, we have to see a change. I mean, we have to see a tone where it is more reflective of a willingness to hear all sides and then uh, try to forge a consensus that is better than what we've seen in some of the results in the past. Hopefully right. be able to see that with the newest people that we've, we've gotten in. I mean, yeah. there's 76% of new people, so hopefully... 
We can we can see some kind and of and I think most of those folks come with an open mind and and a willingness to hear all sides. Most yeah. of them don't uh, come with this attitude that I know the answers or I'm some expert or self-styled expert on on these big issues that they're going to be challenged to really take a hard look at. And so I think that's refreshing. Let's use that as an opportunity for everyone to uh, put their best foot forward and uh, try to see some real progress. Right. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.